Hello and welcome to Peach Pod, a Georgia politics podcast. My name is Kyle Hazen. I am your host. And joining me for today's podcast is Luke Boggs. Luke, how are you doing? Oh, I'm doing great. You know, just surviving the minor apocalypse. Same here, same here. I th- feel like that's about all we can say these days. Surviving seems to be enough. The bar is very low. So on today's podcast, we are going to talk about the latest negotiations in Congress on legislation that would extend unemployment insurance benefits and other economic supports for people who have been unemployed or lost wages at their jobs because of the COVID pandemic. If you've probably seen in the news, those negotiations are basically stalled out. And those benefits uh, that people have relied on to keep themselves afloat, those benefits have expired. Then for our second topic, we are going to take a look at the campaign Kelly Leffler is running to hold on to the Senate seat that Governor Kemp appointed to appointed her to earlier this year. Luke, can you believe that that was this year? What? Wait, what? Really? Yeah. <laughs> I really thought it was 2019. Yeah. I, uh, Senator Leffler has been there. It feels like 20 years, but only the, like a few <laughs> yeah. months. We're she has gone from being this Republican hope for stemming some of their losses among suburban voters to, in my view, at least one of the most notable practitioners of Trump's brand of racist grievance politics. So we're going to talk about that shift and whether or not she is brilliant for doing that shift or, or you know, or, or not. <laughs> um, but first, we're going to start with some odds and ends. Uh, there's been a bunch of little updates, things that we've talked about in the past few weeks that we wanted to update on. One of those, Luke, is that State Senator Nakima Williams, who we talked about on our last show, you know, she got the appointment by Democratic leaders in the state to replace Congressman John Lewis on the ballot in November, meaning that she is almost certain to win the race in November for the 5th Congressional District. She'll be going to Congress in January. Uh, But there is an interesting wrinkle to that story. And that is that there is also going to be a special election to fulfill the unexpired term of Congressman Lewis's. That means that somebody will be, well, several people will be on the ballot to fill Congressman Lewis's seat in Congress through the end of this Congress, meaning basically through the end of this year. Nakima Williams opted not to run in that special election. She told 11 Alive that her focus was on both the November election and making sure the Democrats can make gains this November, as well as focusing on her family. She mentioned that her son is not going to be able to go back to school. Um, So a lot of personal and professional stuff there. Luke, one of the criticisms of the process to replace Congressman Lewis on the ballot was that it was not going to allow voters to decide who would fill that seat. And that seemed to give some people heartburn, given John Lewis's history of advocating for voting rights. Do you think that uh, State Senator Williams should have run in that special election and, and put herself before the voters to get that seat in Congress? Well, you asked me this question before, and I said yes, and so I am a consistent man, so I will say yes. Um, but I, I will admit that despite me leaning more on the side of more democracy and giving voters a chance to weigh in on this, I, I think the decision that she made is very responsible and mature, considering the fact that we are just in COVID times. And the other thing I think is really important to point out here, specifically with Nakima Williams, she is not just Nakima Williams. She's also state senator and Democratic Party of Georgia chair Nakima Williams and mother Nakima Williams. She has a lot of hats she's wearing. And, you know, if it was someone else who didn't have all these other responsibilities, then I think making not running in that in this special would be a lot more condemnable. Um, but in her specific circumstances, I, I think since she is not just worried about her own district, but the entire state, she has a lot of responsibilities. And I think um, not running in that special makes sense in those circumstances. I, I hate that it's basically guaranteed that it's going to be sort of just a vanity election. And it's going to, I, I doubt that it's going to, materialize any candidate that's not her that's going to be able to get 50 percent plus one and uh and that just means that district's going to go without representation for a while longer since it's going to have this september special election and they're going to run off 
uh, and it, it just leaves the district hanging uh, longer, which I, I think is unfortunate. But all in all, I think this is the right call for her specifically. The other thing I think is generally the feeling among Democrats seems to be that Nakima Williams is an excellent selection to replace Congressman Lewis in this district. That is not a question that has been put before the voters yet. And one uh, potentially unfortunate outcome that Nakima Williams avoids by not running for this seat is if she was to get a sort of surprisingly close challenge in a primary by somebody who was relatively unknown or somebody um, who decided to run very aggressively against her for you know making whatever arguments that they would make. She avoids that potential pitfall in showing that you know maybe she is weaker among the electorate than people think. I mean, I don't, I haven't I seen would, indications I would be surprised. of this. Yeah, I mean, like you know, it is true that I imagine that race could get really ugly really quickly. Um, and the concerns about democracy are real, and like what is the best democratic outcome are real. And I think really what this whole situation highlights is like, no, this is federal law that's causing all of these weird circumstances. And it is a situation in which state law could address a lot of the concerns that people have. And I, I don't feel like that is something that would be unnegotiable because uh, it does not have to be seen strictly through a partisan lens because this is really not something that is hurting or benefiting one party over the other. It's it's really a question of how much power are do the political parties as institutions get to keep. And I would hope that we'd be able to come to some sort of um, loosening of the power that the, the parties are having, especially because as far as the Democratic Party goes, you know, we talked to Rachel Pauly. I've talked to other people who are part of that process or close to that process. No one was really overjoyed to be picking John Lewis's successor that quickly after he died. You know, that was, and I feel like that would be true if we were talking about any other congressperson as well. Like it would, it would be equally difficult to try to replace someone under those circumstances. And so this is a place that we need to balance the concerns of getting someone in this seat to temporarily take it over so that a district does not go a long time without representation because it's very, very important to have a voice in Congress advocating for you and balancing the concerns that these folks are democratically elected. And I, I think I think we're not at the right point yet. And, you know, the, the big thing is, I think, for this, for many other seats, I don't think this kind of attention would exist, but for specifically John Lewis's seat and for the people of Atlanta and the people of Georgia, generally speaking, like if Nakima Williams somehow went up to Washington, D.C. and did not fulfill the legacy of John Lewis, which I is very unlikely in my mind, I imagine we will hear about her and she will do great things up there. Um, but if she did, like it is not like she is the appointed for life congressperson. And, and while there is... Uh, you know, not a, uh, a long track record in Georgia of Democratic Congress people being defeated in primaries. Ex exactly the opposite happened this year in 2018. <laughs> Many of them received challenges and beat them back quite effectively. If she did somehow do something that would not be worthy of, of the seat held by John Lewis, I feel like voters would uh, vote her out. So another quick story. Uh, we, on our last show, were all pretty depressed about the prospect of reopening schools. It seemed like a really difficult challenge and it didn't seem like the state was really fully prepared to take on that challenge. Uh, now that we are into August, some schools are reopening and multiple schools in the metro Atlanta area have reported COVID cases of students in their classrooms. Uh, my alma mater, Etowah High School in Cherokee County, had one viral photo that went around, a big senior class picture of dozens of students not wearing any masks. And then at North Paulding High School, two students were suspended for tweeting about an unsafe environment at their schools. They tweeted out pictures that went viral and they got reported on in BuzzFeed of crowded hallways of people not wearing masks. Uh, one particular student tweeted out the share of students in each of her classes who was wearing masks. And it was at best like a third of the classroom wearing masks. 
Luke, this isn't going to go well, is it? No, it's not. But I do love that the punishment for someone being concerned about public health is to put them in a situation in which they are able to protect their public health better. Since (laughs) if you are suspended, you usually either can't go to school or you're like in ISS or something. It was was out of school suspension. Oh, that's perfect. (laughs) I mean, hey, you're you're legging them. Also uh, known as social distancing. That's right. Social distancing. Yeah. Oh, man. Uh, Jokes aside, though. And, and this is a frustration we're going to get into later, but just like there's so many opportunities for Kemp to prove us wrong that he like gives a shit about the public health implications of anything that he's doing. And just the fact that they're not mandating people wear masks and what effectively is just a super spreader, a super spreader event waiting to happen. I mean, it's just like I am not an epidemiologist but some of this shit is not rocket science. It's not that complicated. If you put a bunch of people in a room and there's, you know, so many people statewide infected, the chances of someone in that room being infected is pretty high and the chances of spreading are pretty high, which they will then create more infections. And it's just, I just, I would honestly feel a lot better if they just came on TV and say, I get, I've given up. Give up with me. Make your personal decision about what you're going to do. But the stake is not here to help you in this. Yeah. The thing that's frustrating to me is in the last couple of weeks, we have learned even more about how difficult this is going to be. Uh, The CDC released a report showing, describing an outbreak of COVID at a YMCA camp in Georgia. Basically, the, the thought that we had that maybe... Uh, children, especially young children, were less likely to contract the virus and were less likely to spread it. That, at least in a camp-like environment, which is not so different than a school-like environment, um, that seems to be not the case. Children can well, catch the and other spread thing is, COVID. Yeah, and the other thing is, too, let's just imagine it was true. Viruses mutate, man. <laughs> you know, like they they don't stay the same. They actually, the thing that they're most infamous for is changing. And I mean, I've heard uh, even among people I know who have gotten COVID or thought they might have been exposed to COVID about local doctors being aware of the different strains of this thing going around. And so, just because it is one thing one day doesn't mean it's going to stay that way. And yeah, it's just it's it's very frustrating because. I mean, just like everybody I talk to, both high school students and college students, just expect this to fail. And under that circumstance, the fact that it's so hard to get people to wear masks and to do it responsibly is is very surprising to me. Because just to just to hit on the school thing, while we're on it, you know, like I'm still a law student at University of Georgia, and I will say, if there is a version of this that's going to work, I'm, I'm very curious to see if it's going to be the law school. Uh, and the graduate program I'm in because they are dealing with significantly smaller populations than the undergrad. I don't know how they're going to handle it with undergrads, but um, for both of the programs I'm in, I mean, they have found bigger rooms to put us in. They're trying to do hybrid approach where some of it's going to be online, some of it's going to be in person. They have a pretty intricate, as far as I can tell, you know, system set up for people to report if they have been exposed or had a positive test. You know, same for faculty and staff. And so, I mean, if if there's a version of this that is going to work, it's the UGA version of for these, you know, smaller um, departments. But that will only work if people actually follow the rules that they're setting up and they're setting up a lot of rules. Um, And and so far, the uh, indication is not good of of if people are going to follow these rules but again high school students it's impossible to get them to do anything but well you know. the, so you have i mean you have this environment where learning that the kids are not immune from catching or spreading this you have guidance from the state that accepts that there are going to be outbreaks that sort of frames outbreaks of covid in a similar way to outbreaks of the flu or other you know, communicable, you know, less serious diseases at schools. And then at least as I understand it, and and we may be getting better, but sort of the lack of infrastructure in communities to actually do contact tracing, to do all of the things that you need to do to contain the virus. And look, a lot of kids may end up being okay. They're young, they're healthy, 
but they have family members who may not be okay, who may be more vulnerable to this. And you have teachers who are having to pay for their own supplies in their classrooms, feeling like they might not be safe enough. And so the thing that makes me most nervous is the knee-jerk reaction at North Paulding to suspend these kids for publicizing the issues with reopening. How widespread is that knee-jerk reaction by schools to cover it up rather than being honest? And who is going to pay for that? I think teachers are going to pay for that. And I think when children bring this home to vulnerable family members, that's who's going to end up paying for that. And this is all facilitated by the fact that state leaders really want kids in school for in-person instruction. And apparently, at least early indications from North Paulding and from other places where they are not being very forthcoming with the public about when they have instances of the virus in their schools, they have not created an environment that is going to be very trustworthy. And that, I think, is what makes me very concerned. Well, <clears throat> it's fun to be in our own slow-moving version of Chernobyl. <laughs> yeah. Um. So last odds and ends before we get started. Uh, on Wednesday, Governor Kemp signaled that he was likely to call a special session of the legislature. He said that this special session was necessary to make adjustments to a tax bill that was meant to provide benefits to people who were impacted by Hurricane Michael, that there may be some sort of technical legal problems with this bill that may not stand up under judicial scrutiny, um, and that it was urgent for the legislature to at least be aware that they may be called back to make this change. Um, Both House Speaker David Ralston and Lieutenant Governor Jeff Duncan uh, said that they did not feel the issue around this particular tax bill was urgent, but they floated the possibility that they might entertain the idea of uh, overturning one of the bills that the governor vetoed this session. And then, of course, Luke, the the immediate speculation in political circles was that there was a wider agenda here, potentially, um, and all of that was sort of looked at within the frame of a eroding relationship between Governor Kemp and Atlanta Mayor Keisha Lance Bottoms. So the reason I think they're calling this special session is, as I love to quote on the show, like when, when, when people tell you who they are, believe them, right? And Brian Kemp told us who he was when he ran for governor. He's a, he's, he sees himself as the big man with the gun. And when he pointed that gun at a teenager in that ad, that is who Brian Kemp is. And he, I really honestly think, when he became governor, he hired someone on his staff to say, you know, to, to tell him every single power the governor has. And he just has this big book of powers the governor has. And every time he wants to do something, he points at that book and says, this, set, this book says the governor can do this. And so I want to do it. And what I think he's doing right now is he's, he's pointing a gun at some people. And he's threatening to do this for whatever political reasons he has. So if he has some grievance against all the Republicans running or the Democrats running for re-election right now, he's pointing that gun at them slightly. The people who I think he's pointing it the most at is probably Keisha Lance Bottoms because he's been in uh, combat with her in the courts a lot lately. (laughs) And they are in currently in mediation to try to work out all their issues around mask mandates and stuff like that. And so if I had to guess the thing that had come up uh, during legislative session that could get brought into a special session like this would be something around his relationship with Keisha Lance Bottoms. And the, the most logical thing would be the relationship the state and the city of Atlanta has to the Atlanta airport and the state trying to exercise more oversight and authority over the airport than it has traditionally had. And I, I imagine that is not unrelated to his current battles with her. Yeah, actually, as we are talking, uh, three minutes ago, Greg Bluestein has a story up in the AJC where lawmakers are calling this rationale about this tax bill a pretext. Uh, the The General Assembly for the Legislative Council told Greg that he doesn't believe a legal fix is needed. The House Speaker and the Lieutenant Governor don't believe that a fix is needed. So... I think the question that I'm sort of left with is the governor is floating this. It's, you know, the the date hasn't been set. He's basically put a flag out there. Do you think he's maybe making the rounds among his closest 
uh, legislative allies to see what they would support doing in a special session. I mean, I mean, Brian if, Kemp seems to do, not to talk to people. This is a recurring thing that I, I have you know, mentioned on this program that I really think Brian Kemp only watched TV and like read the AJC for how he thought Governor Deal did the job. Because if you only did those things, really, if you only watch TV, you see Governor Deal go on TV, he says a thing and then that thing happens. And I think Brian Kemp, you know, took it internally that that means like if the governor says something, then it happens. And that's just not how it works. And so, I mean, like if Brian Kemp acted like another you know, like usual governors, then yeah, I imagine he would be talking to people about this. But from what it seems like the these articles suggest is that he just sort of had this thought about this law and then just decided to say that he would call a special session about it. And now he's experiencing the reactions to that. Um, and they aren't that positive. Um, so I, I imagine at this point, maybe he is making calls or getting calls. But I mean, just frankly... I can't imagine a single state representative or senator that would want to go back to session right now under any circumstances, but especially not this year, um, you know, because just take COVID out of it. Take the super spreader potential out of it. Like these guys have been in session, have been in session from January until June. They were completely unable to raise any money. Like, they need to raise money to win re-election because we have a very screwed-up election system. <laughs> so, like, no one wants to go back to session. And even, like, let's just even give Brian Kemp the benefit of the doubt, and it's true. And, like, literally the only thing he would say, he, it's like, I will sign no bill except this fix to farmers because I love the farmers. Like, no one would want to go up to session for that, <laughs> like, by itself. Or it's just, it's crazy to me. I don't really know what he's thinking. <laughs> because well, it's just like, of all, like, you know, it wouldn't even be like, like, we need to, like, if Brian Kemp was like, we need to fix this bill. And then we also need to do some COVID relief stuff. I don't even care what, just something. Like, that would be a better pitch than, like, this bill that's already two years too late. <laughs> we need to fix yeah. some text on it. And then when everyone, including your own lawyer, is like, no, you don't need to do that. <laughs> My favorite thing, apparently the legal issue is an incorrect tracking number on the bill. Right, which I... I, <laughs> I mean, again, that's why I people are so skeptical. I am not a lawyer skeptical. yet, but like I, I would find me a court that would like overturn a law on that basis because I really do not think that is a thing. Yeah. Um, the, yeah, so it's just like this is, this is piss poor... Thinking. Well, it, it's I, interesting. I, I, you know, he tends to welcome some of this friction with the legislature. He welcomed this friction with the legislature in the initial debate in the before times over cutting the budget um, and, you know, got into some back and forth with particularly with House Speaker David Ralston. So, I mean, it's interesting that they, you know, they felt the need to sort of float a power move of their own by threatening to overturn one of his vetoes. So, there must be some struggle going on there, but I think we would file this away under coming attractions. Yeah, and my my last comment on it would be is that I, I think we're probably missing something. There is probably some behind-the-scenes fights going on that makes Kemp want to point this gun at people because, as I mentioned, the most obvious gun being pointed seems to be at Keisha Lance Bottoms, but literally no representative would want to go back to session right now like none i don't care what party i don't care like how secure your race is so he would not do this unless he also was trying to send a message to those folks as well i feel like and i feel like that is clearly seen through ralston's counter message of yeah it's like there's some things we could do to you too buddy if you make us go back so let's move on to the first big topic. As of Thursday evening, negotiators in Congress and at the White House have not reached a deal on the next COVID relief package. This comes just days after the expiration of enhanced unemployment benefits that have helped millions of people in this country afford essentials like food and housing amidst this pandemic. And in fact, that enhanced unemployment benefit is actually a key sticking point for some Republicans who say that they do not want to provide more aid to people that would disincentivize people from returning to work. 
Never mind that as of this week, 16 states are seeing increases in their seven-day average of COVID cases, and another handful of states have leveled off at pretty high rates of infection for COVID. More aid is definitely needed, um, but it seems to be stalled in Congress. Luke, the big sticking point here seems to be this enhanced unemployment, and, and to remind people, for people who lost their jobs during the pandemic, early aid packages tacked on this $600 a week supplement to the existing unemployment benefits that people get so that people who lost jobs because of requirements that people stay home, so people in businesses like restaurants and bars and hair salons and nail salons and other kind of public gathering places, a lot of these people were left out of work because their businesses closed and their businesses closed because people needed to stay home and not gather in these close contact settings. Republicans are arguing that the time for that benefit, or at least the benefit at the magnitude that it was, that time is over because people need to return to work and the economy needs to be restarted um, and are basically threatening to leave people who do not return to work amidst this pandemic to leave them to struggle on whatever meager means they have um, and are doing so surprisingly to me in an election year where Republicans control the majority of government. And because President Donald Trump is on the ballot in November, he is the one who I believe will face the largest rebuke for people's economic struggles at the ballot box this November. Why, Luke, do you think that Republicans have picked this fight over unemployment benefits? And, you know, if if you think it's a way of speaking to their own base, do you think that that is a good strategy? So the reason why I think they've picked this issue is it is one that is very ideologically uh, hard for them to budge on. And what I mean by that is, like, it is a basic, like, tenet of the Republican Party at this point that like people should work and that if you're not working, the government is not here to help you. Right. Like that is just something they basically agree on all the time. And so you take something they agree on all the time and you combine it with Donald Trump, not really believing that the virus is real or just believing that it's going to go away magically one day that we're going to have as you know, millions of cases one day and zero the next you could buy that, so this doesn't seem necessary, right? Because, like, the way the the reason why earlier in the year, when there wasn't such a partisan nature to the uh, virus discussion, everyone could agree on getting more people to stay home was good, and that we like that. And so, what you would hope would have happened at this point is that the conversation could have evolved to the point of like, you know, okay, maybe some people need to work. Maybe it would be good that we're slow if we're slowly trying to make the economy go again. But if there are people in different industries that aren't going to be able to go back to work, then we should help them through this period and we'll have a you know added benefit that those you know those people won't have to move around as much and that'll help keep the virus contained and yada 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 right like so that that's the virus versus ideology element of this and so the republicans just don't care about the virus anymore they don't really believe that it's a problem and they don't really they're not concerned with policy making that would result in harming the virus because they have given up on fighting the virus it's a recurring theme uh on that so that's that now the the second part of that question in you know is the like why do this in an election year and i i don't have a good answer for you because that seems like political insanity and suicide to me especially because at least as i'm aware because these bills keep changing so it's kind of hard to speak in any certainty but like these these bills expire basically the day that Joe Biden uh, would be inaugurated or Donald Trump would be re-inaugurated. And so I feel like the political cost of them would be pretty low. Um, so I am I am equally surprised that they are OK with just like uh, pursuing this this idea. And I, I think what it really comes down to is that the Republican coalition as it exists right now are like two constituencies the incredibly wealthy 
who are constantly paying attention and constantly making their opinions very well known, and the, you know, non-college educated white folks who aren't paying attention as much and make their, uh, you know, feelings known, but not always on the economic topics and far more on the social topics. And so I think it's just one of those things that they are just hoping that, like, people we'll see Democrats and Republicans fighting over things and they won't really understand that it's like, oh, the Democrats are fighting to get you more money and the Republicans are fighting to keep more money away from you. Yeah, and that I think raises to me the other interesting angle about the federal part of this. Democrats have long said, you know, particularly during this crisis, but they have also at other times said that they feel like they have to be the governing party from the minority. Uh, House Democrats passed their version of this relief bill, they passed it all the way back in May, uh, you know, several weeks before these unemployment benefits were going to expire, giving congressional Republicans in the White House plenty of time to try to iron out something that everybody could agree to, to make sure that people were not left hanging. And that seems to have failed. I have noted that, but I don't know how much the coverage has noted that Democrats have been very far out in front of this, and that at the end of the day, the challenge that they face in negotiating with Republicans, but particularly with this White House, is where to draw the line between standing on principle and trying to negotiate a deal that solves many problems, and in some sense caving and accepting sort of the bare minimum that Republicans will offer them, and in the process averting a lot of human suffering because one of the things that Republicans wanted to do to try to regain an upper hand in these negotiations was just accept a short-term extension of the unemployment benefits, which is the most significant cliff in federal COVID benefits that's out there right now. And Democrats held firm at least to date and have said, that's not good enough. And if we do that, if we accept that deal they won't address this issue of state and local governments needing money. They won't address this issue of not having enough resources for testing of COVID across the country. And they won't address this other issue, which you may have heard about in national press about the uh, political interference at the post office that threatens to impact what is largely going to be an absentee balloting vote by mail election where the post office and the infrastructure of mail is going to play a key role. Um, Luke, what do you think about that, that challenge that faces Democrats in Congress about trying to be a responsible governing party from the minority, but at the same time, at the same time, standing firm and not taking bad deals where they can. I think, I think Donald Trump is the perfect president for this version of the Republican party. In Donald Trump's mind, someone else is the president right now, like doing the role that the president would do. I guess he would call it the deep state. Um, and someone else is in control of things. And it's it's very strange to me. I've never understood his psychology here, uh, where he just like does not seem to realize that the president is capable of doing quite great things. And, you know, in, in, in I mean, Greg in just size and scale. Right. And. I think I think the the reason why these fights are like breaking down the way they are is that like Republicans are not dumb. Like Mitch McConnell is not dumb. They have a different worldview, and in their worldview right now, it seems pretty clear that they have given up on this election going well for them. <laughs> I mean that's that's really the only thing I can take away from it, and they have given up on being able to regain any ground. And I think it's, there's a lot of reasons that we could go into, we could talk about on that, but I don't think we need to go into them. I think it's just the, the takeaway is really important. And so like, what is that takeaway? And the takeaway is that we're not going to win this election. Republicans feel that. Like, I think they feel like there's a really good chance that we're not going to win this. We're not going to hold on to the Senate and there's no chance in hell that Trump's going to win. And there's no chance in hell that we're going to take back the house. And so if you believe those three things, the natural thing to do is to just revert back to your ideological project, which is the government is here to do nothing. And we're going to fight real hard to keep the government from doing things. And so like that is why that has become 
their that their ideological position, I think, is because they've given up on not only fighting the virus, but also on retaining power in Washington. And so they're trying to revert back to their minority power of saying no. And I mean, you see this in that Axios interview that Trump did, you know, when when he's getting like really hit on the deaths per day and how that's much, much worse than the um, deaths in other countries. And he basically just says it is what it is, right? And so I, I think that is where the Republicans have, have found themselves. It's just like this, it is what it is. And I think they feel that politically and uh, with the virus. So now coming back to your actual question, which I da- you know avoided, was like, what do Democrats do? And I think what Democrats need to think about in this is the both short-term and long-term needs of the country because we are the only governing party in in you know this country and we need to think about what we need to do to get people through this period but also assuming whatever outcome November has how do we keep the country on track to getting into a position where we can fight these things because i mean the the thing i think republicans underestimate is just if like Trump loses and the Senate does go to Democrats or even if they just lose some seats or even if some incumbents get defeated, like the appetite in the country for shit getting done is going to be very, very high. Because in the same way that you hear a lot of stories about like our foreign and our international partners in general, just like kind of waiting to see if Trump wins or not uh, before they make a lot of rash decisions. I kind of feel like the country is in a similar spot where a lot of people, both in politics and out, are just expecting things to suck until Trump is gone. Um, That like if Trump is actually defeated, I, I would not be surprised if you see the Larry Hogan's and Charlie Baker's of the world um, becoming Joe Biden's best friend and pushing very, very hard for the federal government to do things. Um, And in a way that I think they're underestimating. That puts Joe Biden in an interesting position because the other piece of reporting that we've seen is reporting that suggests that Joe Biden, who ran as the most moderate candidate in the Democratic primary field, although he also was running on a historically progressive platform, it's just his opponents in the primary were even more historically progressive than he was. His eyes seem to be opening to a much grander, much bolder vision for his presidency than you might have anticipated, given the Joe Biden that we saw in the primaries. For progressives, that creates a really interesting question given that Joe Biden is likely to have suitors from the moderate wing of the Democratic Party and maybe moderate Republicans. You mentioned those two governors, a really interesting senator, I think, in a Joe Biden presidency where Democrats control the Senate and maybe even get rid of the filibuster. Really interesting senator in that environment to me is Mitt Romney, who in some ways has succeeded John McCain in sort of his own independent place on some issues. But for progressives, they want this leftward momentum for Joe Biden to continue, and they probably don't really want Joe Biden on the phone with Larry Hogan or Mitt Romney. How do you think about that dynamic? Because, you know, Republicans in the hard right flank have at times disrupted their own party's agenda to make ideological points. Democrats historically have had less appetite for that. But if you want to push Joe Biden, you may have to be aggressive. Well, what I think is going to happen just based off of what I've seen Joe Biden do in his time in government and how he's run this campaign is if Joe Biden is president, he is going to want to do things. And as an effect of him wanting to do things, they're going to have to be big things because, I mean, you have to remember, Joe Biden was who Obama put in charge of the relief efforts in 2008 and 2009. So it's like he he wanted to do bigger things than Congress allowed him to do and was unable to do it. And so the, th- the thing I think is very likely to happen here is there's a reason why, like, FDR 
was a rich white dude and able to do all the things he did. There's a reason why LBJ, who was a Southern senator, was able to do all the things on civil rights that he did. And it's because when the nation looks at them, they they feel certain things about them and they feel like they feel like they are pragmatic moderate voices pushing things, right? And so like Joe Biden being Joe Biden, an old white dude who for his entire career has been the moderate guy, like if he goes out there and just full throatedly says we should do the green new deal just the way AOC said it, just because it's him, the words he will choose and the way he will pitch it will not seem radical. And so, cause it's not Bernie. And so I really think it's going to be a lot harder than some people, um, are guessing that if Biden does choose to pitch the really far left thing or something that is even just way further to the left than like even Obama could have gone done just because it's coming from him, it will be a lot harder for opposition to build because it's just like, it's very hard. And I mean, Trump has found this. It is incredibly hard to scare people about things that Joe Biden wants to do because Joe Biden just doesn't pitch things in a way that people find threatening. Yeah. And I think that's going to be an interesting dynamic to watch too, because if, you know, I I've seen a lot of analysis that suggests that Biden sort of views himself as a, leader of a coalition government more so than sort of a conquering political faction. He does seem interested in deal-making and in, you know, bending his own personal views to fit the caucus that he leads, the party that he leads, and the governing coalition that he leads. That, I think, leaves things wide open, but, you know, he's going to have suitors from every direction wanting to help shape what the Biden administration looks like. Um, it's going to make for for interesting dynamics in, in Congress next year. Um, and Well, not just in Congress, because w- one thing I wanted to hit on too, because this is a, a newer development, um, is that the voices in Georgia's Republican Party calling for aid to states have, have increased its ranks, because now David Ralston, our House Speaker, is, is calling for that as well. And I think... You know, if Biden wins, those those sort of so things are only going to multiply. There's going to be more people uh, pushing for that, and I think that shapes up you know, shakes up rather the possibilities um, for what that administration can get done because the the needs of the country will be so great that just having a leader of any political party that uh, is wanting to fix those things that are clearly bleeding the country out, I, I think the potential for stuff to actually get done is much, much higher than than people think because of these strange bedfellows that are going to pop up. To me, that split between House Speaker David Ralston and previously the two chairs of the Appropriations Committee in Georgia, uh, Blake Tillery over in the Senate and Terry England in the House, they have all called for the federal government to provide aid to state and local governments. In that call, they agree with Democrats in Congress. It's it's congressional Democrats bill that does that. And it's Senate Republicans proposals that do not. Um, that to me highlights this difference in the Republican Party of who feels a responsibility to govern and who feels more fealty to an ideology. Because I would note conspicuously absent from calls for more federal aid for Georgia is Governor Kemp, who oversaw a state budget that cut $2 billion and who has been calling for things like students returning to schools that is going to require resources to make happen. And yet he is, he is never out there calling for more resources in these instances. It's, it's just, it, it is, it shows a lot in a moment when, governing is demanded who is willing to put their political capital on the line to actually do the governing versus who retreats to their ideological corner. Yeah, that that's really true, Kyle. Cause like one thing I've been doing is uh, as a thought experiment is like, what would a Democrat Senator of Georgia be doing right now? And a- as I started that thought experiment, it actually really morphed into more of like what I expect Johnny Isaacson probably would have done because uh, it, it's and it's not because I think Isaacson's some giant liberal, but it's just like the the needs of Georgia in this moment that you could get from the federal government. 
uh, I, I feel like are so obvious. And I mean, even David Perdue, if he just like had de-Trumpified himself a little bit, uh, really could have put himself in a strong position because I feel like as a Georgian senator of either party, you, you could have, especially in an election year, you could have made yourself completely unassailable if you just adopted a line of, you know, pushing really hard for relief for farmers, small businesses, and like money to state and local governments. Like that would have been such an unassailable campaign to be running right now of just like, you know, we need to get money to keep these core parts of Georgia businesses alive and make sure we have, you know, more resources for, uh, you know, health, uh, healthcare workers and hiring contact tracers and all these, you know, all these different things the state needs. And, you know, being a voice for responsible uh, governance and doing the right thing is just such an opportunity for a leaguer here because while we do live in a state with a current slate of electeds that are very conservative, I mean, they, they want business to do well. They want things to work. And you see that in the legislature quite often. I feel like, uh, you know, again, uh, Purdue or even this, you know, fictional thought experiment <laughs> Democratic senator could be doing a really good job in the state right now pushing for these things. But I find it just amazing. And, you know, I know we're about to, to speak about her more, but it's just amazing to me that neither Purdue or Loeffler are like taking advantage of either of these political opportunities, both because it is a political opportunity and because it is like what Georgia actually desperately needs right now. And so it's just strange to me that they aren't fighting for those things. Yeah, let's that's a good segue. Let's move on to our final topic and talk about Kelly Leffler, Georgia senator, who did not carry on Johnny Isaacson's focus on governing over ideology and playing politics. Um, so if you have paid attention to Senator Leffler lately, you have noticed that in the middle of a pandemic, in the middle of an economic crisis, she is picking culture war fights with the WBA, <laughs> taking on the real challenges out there. She has spent. I'm glad someone's finally brave enough to do it. She is the spent, most powerful institution in, in in the country, unarguably. She has spent most of the last month criticizing WNBA players who wanted to highlight Black Lives Matter, wear gear with social justice messages, and demonstrate during the national anthem. She is the co-owner of a WNBA team. And in doing so, she actually wrote a letter to the WNBA commissioner blasting players in the league where she is a co-owner of a team that would take this opportunity to make demonstrations, particularly after the nationwide demonstrations that we saw calling for justice for people, particularly for black people who have been murdered by police. Um, instead, she wants the league to put American flags on every uniform and not allow players to be doing things like demonstrating during the national anthem. She has also, in general, leaned heavily into rhetoric that feels, you know, historic Nixon Southern strategy rhetoric, tough on crime. She has put forward legislation that would take highway funding away from cities that reduce any funding for police. Um, she's proposed legislation that cracks down on gang activities, and she has attacked Doug Collins for being a criminal defense attorney, um, which, as as many lawyers would say, you, you'd probably say, Luke, too, is, you know, kind of crosses a line given that we have a legal system that values representation for people who are accused of crimes, um, kind of a political low blow there from from Leffler uh, to attack people who would represent people who've been accused of crimes. Yeah. And I mean, it's been fascinating for, for me to watch Senator Leffler, um, operate because I mean, let's, let's just think about the narrative and the steps that we've gone through. Right. So she, she gets sworn in as a Senator in January of 2020. And really before then we hear almost nothing about her. No one knows who she is when Kim says he's going to appoint her. And that basically holds true for, um, until she becomes a senator. And basically the narrative before she was a senator was, well, Georgians are, you know, Georgia Republicans are really worried about the suburbs, especially worried about white women and women in the suburbs. So Kemp has appointed this white woman we know nothing about. And so that probably means she's more moderate. And 
Also, she has a lot of money. Basically, from the like millisecond that she got in there, Doug Collins made it really clear that he was probably going to run against her. And she basically tried to outdo Purdue on being Trump's favorite senator from Georgia. Uh, and, you know, I kind of wrote some of that off because like her and Trump had a really bumpy start. And so like, I get it that like, if you're going to be a senator in a party that's led by a cult of personality leaguer, like you're going to have to make that guy like you. Um, and so I kind of wrote that off as just like, okay, that makes sense. I would, you know, I can't blame you um, if that's how you're going to go. And that's the party you're going to choose. And then something started to shift, which in my mind, I was always like pretty low on the people that thought that like the reason why Kemp picked Loeffler is because she would be moderate because Kemp hates moderates and he ran a very successful primary campaign defeating the moderate guy. And so I always thought that she was going to be super, super conservative. I just thought she would like message herself as a moderate and basically like sound like Johnny Isaacson, but vote like David Perdue. Um, and that's not what she's doing at all. And I feel like as the temperature's gotten hotter and that like she seems more and more out of step with the uh, culturally appropriate thing to do, I guess is the way to, to frame this, um, that like she keeps doubling down on this. And it's really fascinating to me because I feel like her and Trump are very, very similar in this is that like other people seem to like back off on these culture war, racial war things. And she does not, she doubles down and it's very, very strange. Yeah. I was a little more, um, optimistic regarding the arguments that she would chart a more moderate path, partially given that there were Republicans arguing that Trump's focus on racially divisive politics is a turnoff to the kinds of people that given the political map in Georgia make Republican office holders very vulnerable. You know, Lucy McBath took the sixth congressional district. Rob Woodall barely won the seventh congressional district. And that's one that's, that's primed to flip in 2020 and statewide the margin that really could shift the state in favor of Democrats is if you lose significant support among suburban voters. There's just a lot of people that live in the metro Atlanta area. And if you lose a big group of them, unless you can really run up your totals among rural areas of the state, among the state's most conservative voters, it really is a challenge to win statewide. Brian Kemp barely won that governor's race. Um, and that's the reason that Donald Trump has the po has the potential to lose Georgia in the presidential race in 2020. And to me, this basket of issues focusing on the absolute worst impression that you can get from the Black Lives Matter movement just isn't very reflective of the interests of the kinds of voters that I thought Kelly Leffler needed to appeal to. Um, it was interesting to me, I saw this AJC story a few weeks back that We've had Black Lives Matter protests in places like Peachtree City and Cartersville and Kennesaw and Noonan, all of these like suburban and exurban and even some rural places like over in Madison. You've had these Black Lives Matter demonstrations, and certainly they don't represent the view of probably the majority of people in those communities. But I think when particularly parents see their children engaging in this kind of stuff, it opens their eyes a little bit and I think would cause them to be skeptical of the moves of somebody like Kelly Leffler, who is very obviously and not very gracefully playing into these divisions, exacerbating them, making them worse, all for what is obvious political gain for her. And, I, and I'm perplexed by that strategy, given that even Republicans acknowledged that these were the kind of voters that needed to be focused on. And that just doesn't reflect the path that she's chosen. Yeah. So I think the question that obviously spurns from that is like, what path has she chosen and why? Right. And so there's a very logical reason in my mind that she's chosen this path is because she thinks it's the politically advantageous path. Um, I agree that she's not very good at it, because every time I see a tweet from her or I see something in a news article about her, like I really do a double take and I'm like, 
is this actually from her account or is this a parody account? There's there's this very like inappropriate and way too can you know like it's one of those things where it's a parody that borders on being too offensive to be funny, but it, the, uh, a, of a congressman from the fifteenth of just like the most conservative racially animus thing you could imagine, and it is a good if like the tweets from that account and the tweets from Loeffler's account are very similar. Um, and I, I've really had to do a double take and I'm just like, why is she doing this? And I think the reason that she's doing it is because she views that jungle primary as a primary and that it's her job to get enough Republicans to vote for her, um, and not win the war, uh, of the whole election. Because, you know, similarly to after 2012, when Obama beat Mitt Romney and the, the party did this big autopsy that they were, uh, so proud of where they talked about how they were going to appeal to immigrants and to racial minorities and all these, you know, these great things the, the problem with that strategy and with that approach is Republican voters really hate it. They really, really don't like people that do that. And so the reason why I think she's not doing it is because one, maybe that's just you know, Kemp picked her, and so he picked her for a reason. So maybe these are this is how she feels. Um, and two, I the there's a Monmouth University uh, poll that came out that had her ahead of Doug Collins, which like Kyle and I were both very very surprised when we saw uh, saw that. And the the numbers just to hit on those very quickly was with Loeffler with twenty six percent and Collins with twenty. Uh, there's another result in here that I thought was really interesting, which is. This poll was in the field after John Lewis passed away. And so they asked Georgians like what their opinion of him was. And so overall, 53% of Georgians said they had a favorable opinion. But um, Republicans, 53% said they had no opinion of John Lewis. And so what else is interesting about this is only 8% of people overall had an unfavorable view of John Lewis. And it's just the fact that it is so tilted towards the republican on the non no opinion of john lewis uh and to contrast that only 35 percent of independents and 22 percent of democrats had no opinion of john lewis um i feel like that 53 percent is a lot of people who would like to say that they don't like john lewis but they're unwilling to do so because they just know that would be a blatantly racist thing to say or that they are just so loyal to Donald Trump that they like know that Donald Trump doesn't like John Lewis, and so they're just like mimicking that by saying no opinion. Um, I really, really think that what is happening here is that Loeffler, through being like on some level a parody of a Republican senator in the South, that what has happened is she she's really following the Trump strategy quite effectively because what she's doing is she's causing controversy and she's causing AJC headlines to be written and for people to talk about, look at ridiculous thing that she said. And that has two effects. One, she is drowning out Doug Collins. I have not heard a Doug Collins story in months. I have no idea what he's doing or what his campaign is about anymore because he has just it way entirely and i and so because of that loffler is the only one that anyone talks about and so she i mean it's a brilliant brilliant trump like strategy of you just be super controversial and so everyone talks about you and so the base voters are probably starting to lose that impression they had of her that she was not trump enough or not crazy enough for them because she's proving it day by day that she is and it's it's really really fascinating because I, I I currently have money bet on Doug Collins being the first finisher <laughs> in that in that uh, race, and I really might change it <laughs> if this keeps up, uh, because she's really building a profile which we find negative, but to win the primary that she's running, that might be all she needs to do, because, um, I mean, with how uh, Warnock and Lieberman are polling in in this, which to, to hit on those numbers, Matt Lieberman is uh, getting 14% of the vote and Raphael Warnock is only getting nine, while Ed Tarver, who again, almost no one has heard of, is getting five. I mean, like with that, I'm really depressed to say that unless something changes, Democrats could be completely shut out of this runoff. And if if that does happen, I mean, Loeffler is a genius, or her her consultants are. 
Um, well, the because, other thing, yeah, the other thing is, I don't even think that she has to necessarily shut the Democrats out of the runoff. It actually, in some ways, could be a little bit of a riskier strategy if she is sort of hoping that her and Collins end up in the runoff, because then it it becomes really gloves off, bare knuckle fighting for a, a low turnout runoff election after basically all of the big politics of 2020 is done. But the thing that I find most interesting in Leffler's political turn here is I actually, as the more that I've thought about this, I am pretty persuaded that Leffler sees herself as running in a Republican primary within this jungle primary and that the best strategy for her is to beat Doug Collins and then let the chips fall where they may after that. The interesting sort of background reading of the tea leaves I can do on this is that this must reflect the political thinking of Brian Kemp. Most of the comms people, at least most of the most visible comms people working with Kelly Leffler have ties to Governor Kemp. Her messaging and his messaging are almost indistinguishable, with the exception of he has not written a letter targeting the WNBA. Yet. Uh, they, yet. Um Let's see if the WNBA requires masks, and then he might do it. Um, But on rhetoric around the importance of police officers, on the importance of backing Donald Trump, on the importance of pro-life issues, and on sort of conservative base issues, they are almost indistinguishable. The interesting forthcoming attraction there is that if Kelly Loeffler succeeds with the strategy, she makes it back into the Senate, she has to run again statewide in 2022 in a more usual setup, a primary and then a general election. And she is on the ballot at the same time with Governor Kemp. And this to me is where the rubber might hit the road on, do Republicans really believe that they can account for losing ground in the suburbs by leaning into this, you know, grievance racial politics? Do they believe they can overcome that by running up the numbers in rural Georgia and win another 50.5 to 49.5 victory statewide. This is where I think the plan falls apart, is because even in a a midterm year, a year that's likely to be the first midterm of a Democratic president, both of them are going to have to run on really difficult records, really difficult times in office, and they are leaning into a politics that does not play well among the voters that I believe they need to maintain majorities within the state. Well, what gets even more interesting, Kyle, is that one of my client's opponents, uh, you know, so obviously a Republican sitting incumbent um, representative, like a, a group allied to his campaign put out an ad for him, which was very, very positive regarding his support for hate crimes legislation the second time around because of course he voted against it back when it was politically advantageous to be racist um and so it it seems very clear that there are people in the republican party who realize that like maybe being perceived as racist or not great on race relations is bad and that we don't want our party to do that um like they they very well seem to, to recognize in general elections that this is a bad strategy for them and a like a, a, a liability. And so I agree with you. It's going to be very interesting to see that, you know, if Loeffler ends up surviving all these uh, political trials that she's in right now, how this comes back to her in 2022, because the <clears throat> Republicans who are currently running one-on-one with Democrats right now are very, very concerned from everything I've seen uh, about this exact issue. And so I, I would just be surprised if this does not come back to hurt her eventually because, you know, in this jungle primary followed by a low, probable low, low turnout election, yeah, like this strategy makes sense. But if you want to be senator in 2023, not as much. Well, and it also here, I think the state of Virginia is really instructive. Virginia and Georgia, I think, share a lot of similarities to their politics. The D.C. suburbs in northern Virginia used to be a pretty conservative place. Now is is much more progressive, you know, wealthy, college educated people who have moved from Republicans to Democrats. 
Um, Virginia recently was the site of a Democratic takeover. And when that Democratic takeover went fully into effect, the uh, Democratic governor candidate, Ralph Northam, he ran against a Republican who was a former wealthy, it was Ed Gillespie, he was like the chair of the party or whatever, but he's like known as a wealthy Republican fundraiser who based his campaign on racial grievance politics around immigration and lost badly. Yeah, and this seems to be a recurring thing that happens because Colorado was like the first state to go through this. And I I will not claim this is an original idea because I I heard this, I believe, on Chuck Todd's Meet the Press podcast. They had a great discussion on this. Um, But basically... That there's been a couple states in recent years that went from you know red to purple to blue, and the purple phase did not last very long because when the Republican Party started losing, they basically went straight to these kinds of social issues and went crazy and the got beaten down and the Democrats just took over. And so, I mean, if this trajectory continues where the David Ralstons of the world are getting sidelined and the Purdue's and Lafleurs of the world are getting promoted, then I don't see that working forever, right? Like Georgia has a couple more cycles where it could work, but I really feel like 2022 might be the last one because the stake is changing and growing at such a rate. And if it's anything like what's happening around the rest of the country, I, I feel like campaigning this way will only exacerbate that change and make it happen faster, and it will not save them. Because rural Georgia, as we love to talk about on this show, has basically been abandoned. And so it's a place that is dying. It is not a place that is growing and becoming more politically powerful. Um, so if you you know continue this pattern of abandoning your base um with actual resources and antagonizing your opponents uh that is growing like eventually that math equation stops working for you and you lose well on that note i think we will close things out for today uh every time you luke and i do the show together we always go long um this is the the feature of the the og shows the ones just the two of us that Circa 2016, 2017 Peach Pod, if you want to dive deep in the archives. I I like the old shows. They're uh, free will and Bob Dylan, as I like to say. And they're they're a lot of, a lot of fun. And I feel like we get get drawn back into the discussions that made us want to start this show in the first place. Yeah, definitely. Well, if you are still listening, uh, we appreciate you hanging out with us for over an hour. Uh, We will give you back your day and we will talk to you again next week. Bye, guys. That's our show for today. If you like what you heard, subscribe to Peach Pod. Thanks, as always, to our fantastic interns, Olivia Bauer, Peyton Childers, and Kelly Dobso for their help researching this episode. Until next time, take care, y'all.